Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Um, this morning, we're beginning a series um, on our distinctives as a church. That's why I have that picture up there, that inception picture. It's you guys looking at yourselves. Um, we're beginning a, a series on our distinctives as the church, um, the pillars that are going to shape our congregation in the coming years. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'll introduce three themes. The gospel of the kingdom, the church community, and discipleship or cruciformity. So three things, the gospel of the kingdom, the church community, and discipleship or cruciformity. Now why these three themes? Because they are the primary themes that we find in the New Testament scriptures. Those three themes and what we'll introduce are an attempt to boil down the scriptural vision of what it means to be the church, really of what the scriptures are saying in total, and then to present them to you in a straightforward manner. So over these next, this week and the next three weeks, it's going to be less about the details and more about the big picture, putting forth a vision for us to unite around to find our place within the larger scriptural story. Now, I'll get to that vision later. I'll introduce it to you at least at the end of the message. But first, I want to begin with a story of a missionary. Uh, Greg, if you'd switch to the next slide, please. His name is Leslie Newbegin. You may have heard that name before. Well, in 1936, Leslie and his wife, Helen, set out from England all the way to India as missionaries to spread the gospel and to found new churches. Now, his ministry in India was very fruitful. He stayed there almost 40 years ministering to the Indian people, uh, starting churches in various cities in the southern part of the nation. Now, after his 40-year ministry, it was time to return home in 1974, so him and his wife, Helen, um, they packed everything they had into two small suitcases, and they took public transportation all the way home back to England, um, hitchhiking even when necessary. And it took them two months from their home in southern India all the way back to England. Now, along the way, um, Leslie and his wife, they found other believers in every stop, right? You could imagine that, from southern India all the way to England, in every stop except one, and that was in Cappadocia, um, which is today kind of the region of Turkey. And Cappadocia used to be one of the great centers of the church. And that Sunday in that region, they worshiped alone in an abandoned cave church that the Christians had carved out sometime in the fourth century. It was a sobering experience for both, and Leslie later on in his life would recount that that Sunday they took time to contemplate the fact that a great and living church can be completely destroyed. Now that was a suitable uh, introduction to the next phase in Leslie's life. In India, Leslie learned how to interpret a culture like a, uh, like a missionary, rather. Again, imagine if you're going to a different culture to spread the gospel... You're going to need to learn a lot about that culture. And that's what Leslie did. He learned who the people were, the Indian people. He learned the convictions that shaped them, and etc. 
It was said that he knew the culture and the language better than most natives. And this is what made him effective for the gospel. Because he could translate it from the scriptures, even from his own cultural context, into their mindset and to their language while remaining faithful to the truth. So he entered into the culture and therefore was a successful ministry. And then he returned home. Then he returned home to the West. Now there's a a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. That basically sums up Newbegin's situation. He had fresh eyes to see Western culture in a new way. For the rest, the change, you could imagine, from 1936 to 1974 when he returned home, that change happened incrementally. But for him, imagine the culture shock. It happened all at once, returning to uh, the West after that many years of change. So in other words, those people in the culture, they did not know the water had changed, but he did. And what Leslie Newbegin did was he brought his missionary skills that he learned in, uh, in India to bear on his own culture. And it set the course for the rest of his life. Now, have you ever had that experience um, of kind of looking on something familiar with, with new eyes? Now, I don't travel much, but when I do, I try to let every new place have an impression on me. So not too long ago, we were returning from a, a small vacation in Tucson. And um, when we were driving home, I tried to imagine what it would be like to live in each of those little towns we passed, right? Those broken down border towns that dot the I-10. Um, and it was honestly depressing, right? I don't want to live in Lordsburg, but um, it was easy to do, right? Looking on these cities from an outside perspective, it was easy to do until we got closer to home, right? And so the more familiar I was, you know, really past Socorro, I couldn't look on it objectively because my own experience came into play. And the less I could stand outside things, right? It was like a fish entering back into his own water. And it's all familiar again, and you lose that perspective. Well, in Newbegin's case, he had been away long enough to keep that outsider perspective. And so that when he came back, he could really turn a critical eye on the West, specifically the Western church. And what did he find? Well, Newbegin wrote countless books in the 70s and the 80s and then the 90s before he died. And he essentially said he was not very pleased with the church. He said that it had made peace with the idolatrous culture, that the church in the West allowed itself to be sidelined and boxed into this little thing called religion. He said that it was still operating according to the old consensus when the church had a privileged place in society. And he said most of all that the church had lost its confidence in the gospel and its power to transform the world. In essence, what Newbegin said was that the church was living in a time that had changed. It was operating under the presumption that society was still Christian, but that was no longer the case. He said that the West had become a mission field closer to India than to its own society a hundred years ago. And what he said was that if the church was not going to die like that one in Cappadocia, 
It had to recover its missionary identity. It had to recover its missionary identity. Now, I want to try something of a, a thought experiment with you guys. <clears throat> Let's imagine ourselves in a similar scenario. The year is 1983 when our church started, when this congregation started 40 years ago. I just busted out the old, um, the old photo books thinking about what I was going to say, and I was looking through. Our church started 40 years ago. Ronald Reagan is president uh, during this time. The average income was $21,000. The cost of gas was, listen to this, $1.16. Uh, the police and uh, Michael Jackson topped the music charts. Star Wars Return of the Jedi was the number one movie that year. <laughs> there you go, right? And the MASH finale um, had just become the most watched TV show ever. The year is 1983. Now, from that idyllic experience or existence, let's say you become a missionary to some faraway land. You have little to no contact with Western society, and you return in the year of our Lord, 2023. How are you going to respond to the change? <laughs> I could read your, your guys' expressions. <laughs> How are you going to respond to the change? Right? I imagine you might say something like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And that's the right answer. I provide that little whatever it is to say that we're not living in the land of Oz anymore, or we are living in the land of Oz, excuse me, and that this land now is what we'd call a post-Christian society. As one commentator says, we can no longer think of the West as Christian. It's becoming increasingly secularized, and any Christian influence on the West is disintegrating. Right, I think we would agree. Now, it used to be that in the United States, you could start a church and people would come, meaning there was not much evangelism that you had to do, right? Not much of preaching the gospel because most people already had loosely Christian beliefs and they assumed that attending church was mostly a good thing, right? So evangelism, at least in that context, looked like kind of connecting the religious dots, helping them move from sort of a general religious sphere to Christianity in particular. But the point is that I'm making is not so much about evangelism, but about churches. It was a time where sort of if you build it, they will come. You could start a church. And there's other places in our culture that are still like that, right? Certain places in the Bible Belt and so on and so forth. Cities that are big enough where you could just start a church and people will come. Now that said, this doesn't really and never really has applied to our church. And the simple reason is because Tom never intended on starting a church. He was given one. He had no intention of being a pastor. Uh, God just made him one. And thus our church began. A prayer meeting turned into a Bible study, ultimately turned into a church in a living room back in 1983. Greg, if you'd switch to the next slide. Here's some of those old pictures. There's Jeannie and uh, Liz, if you could see him. Uh, next slide, please, Greg. Um, there's Tish and some baby, I don't know. 
Uh, next slide, please. There's, there's Bob. <laughs> Still up in front. And then let's see one more. Um, that, I think, was one of the church's first retreat. That tower back there is not a tree. It's Mike. And uh, Laurel standing in front of him. Tom's got his 10-gallon hat on and Tish is in front of him. That was how our church started. And I encourage you, there's some, um, some binders back there. I'll bust them out after service. You can look, at, look in them. But as we noted, much has changed since this time. Our cultural situation in the year 2023 is unimaginably different. And the church, not just our church, is in uncharted waters. And as our culture continues on its post-Christian trajectory, soon it's not going to matter what the church does within its four walls. Good services, great worship, strong programs, all these things, they might work in a semi-Christian society, but not the one into which we are heading. For many years, the church in the West was defined by its location and role within a Christian society. It came to operate in a certain way, but all that is now out of the window. We cannot rely upon the old consensus. And that's not an indictment on our church. It's simply the reality that every church in the West faces. This is not particular to our congregation. This is all across our society. So things have changed. Things have changed. And to survive in this new situation, we have to go back to the drawing board. And that brings us back to our vision for the church and back to the story of Leslie Newbegin. He said for that the church to survive in the West and indeed to reach the West again for the gospel, he said that the church has to go back to its missionary roots. Not that it has to become something new in accommodation to society. That's the problem, right, when the church accommodates to society. He says, but instead, that it has to recapture its essential nature, as demonstrated in the early church. And we believe he's right. We believe that Newbegin was right. And what is the church's essential nature? Well, as it's defined and exemplified in the scriptures... It is missionary or missional in nature. To say that the church is missional in nature does not mean to say that everything we do is reduced to evangelism or that what we need to do is start up a new missions department in the church. Instead, and I don't, I don't want to, well, I want to be as clear as possible here. Instead, to be missional, it means that we understand ourselves as the church in the context of God's mission to the nations. It means that we understand our mission in the context of God's prior mission. So it doesn't describe then an activity of the church, but its very essence and nature. So we have these things, right, called department stores. Walmart, Target, Costco, things like that. Now these stores, department stores, they don't only sell one thing, they sell everything. They sell home goods, they sell groceries, they sell household supplies, they sell sporting goods, and etc. A department store is a collection of departments, like a university, right, made up of various colleges. Now, if we think of the church like that, 
we might say that mission is one such department, right, tucked away in the back corner next to counseling. But when we say, right, that the church is missional in nature, what we're saying is not that the church has a missions department, right? That mission is one thing that we do among many other things, but instead that the church is a mission. The church doesn't have a mission. The church is a mission. Rather than as a department store, it's better to think of the church, as some of you guys might appreciate this, like Sportsman's Warehouse or REI. Both stores specialize in outdoor recreational gear. So one thing and not many. And within those stores, there's hunting or climbing or fishing or canoeing gear that all pertains to the one thing that they do. The church is closer to that. The church is a mission, and everything that it does aligns under that heading and is ordered toward that end. Now, turning to the scriptures, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciple and says the following. Next slide, please. It says, Jesus says, as we read, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, this is a very important passage for understanding the missional nature of the church. And there are a few things to know. And the first is the priority of the divine mission. Prior to sending the church, I also send you, Jesus declares that he has himself been sent. He says, as the Father has sent me. In other words, mission is not first and foremost our thing, right? It's not first and foremost the church's thing. Mission comes from God and it belongs to God. So the church has a mission because ultimately God has a mission. We've been charged with a task because God has taken up a task in the world. We have work to do because God has work to do. So it goes like this. The Father sends the Son, and the Son sends His church in the power of His own Spirit. God has His own mission. He's redeeming the world, and He brings the church into existence to accomplish that mission. So mission doesn't come from the church. It's not our thing. Rather, the church comes from mission. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but that God has a mission and he has a church for it. God has a church for his mission. So our point is, our point that I'm trying to get across to you is that to rightly understand ourselves as a church, we need to understand our place within the wider mission of God. That is the scriptural story. Indeed, one way that you could summarize the biblical story is by mission. The scriptures begin with God creating a good world, with humanity at its centerpiece, as its centerpiece, rather. And he creates this world, and he creates us as humans to share his glory and life. But through cosmic evil and sin, death is introduced to God's creation. It's now subjected to corruption and ultimately to judgment. However, against this backdrop, a rebellious 
and lost creation, God sets out on a long quest to restore all creation from death and sin. God's mission is His long-term intention to bring about a renewed and restored heaven and earth. In essence, that's the story that the Scriptures tell. It begins in Genesis 1 with creation and then Genesis 3, death. And it ends in Revelation 22 with new creation and victory. The Bible provides us with a grand story that encompasses all nations and all peoples and all earth's history. It's fundamentally a story about God's mission to redeem the world. About how He goes about through His Son and His Spirit to fix what the enemy and human sin has destroyed. So the Bible is a story about God's mission. While in India, uh, Newbegin, he tells us about a conversation that he had with the Hindu scholar of world religion at that time. And the scholar told him, um, if you would, uh, Greg, next slide, thank you. It says, I can't understand, this is the conversation they're having, and, and the, the, the scholar of world religion says to him, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. He says, it's not a book of religion, and we have plenty of books of religion in India. He says, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. Again, we think he's right. It's not a generic book of religion, but it's a story about God, how God is redeeming the world, the story of universal history. So back to our point, to say that the church is missional in nature, to say that the church doesn't have a mission, but that the church is a mission, is simply to understand ourselves, our place rather, in the scriptural narrative, where we fit into God's mission to restore and redeem all things. In other words, the church's missional identity is founded in the role that God assigns his people in the biblical story. The church has a mission because God has a mission. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus kind of has to summarize the scriptural story for his disciples. Right? They, they constantly are lagging behind him in understanding. He has died and risen again and they still can't quite understand the meaning of it. The disciples, they expected something different from the Messiah. They did not expect him to be crucified. And they certainly did not expect him to be uh, resurrected from the dead on the third day. And so the reality of who Jesus was as the Messiah was stretching their minds to the point of, of breaking. They weren't able to understand. So Jesus having risen and now appearing to his disciples, says uh, Luke 24, verses 44 through 45. He says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he says, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. 
In other words, the disciples couldn't understand the meaning of the crucifixion and the empty tomb because they did not understand the Scriptures. Jesus tells them that his life, particularly his death and resurrection, were written down beforehand, foretold in countless ways through the law and the prophets and the writings. Essentially, he tells his disciples, the Scriptures are about me. God's dealings with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the covenant at Sinai, the history of the kings and the prophets, the exile and the return to the promised land have all been leading to and indeed foretelling these events. That's what Jesus is saying. It all culminates and it all leads up to him. The disciples should have seen it coming, but the meaning was hidden from their eyes. Thus, Jesus opened their minds, and he tells them the scriptural story this way. Next slide, please. It says, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So here we see the church is born into mission and because of mission. Jesus says that all of history has been leading to this point. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and that he would be lifted and raised again from the dead. It's all been leading to this point. It's been written and now it's come to pass. The church is not created for its own sake, but to carry on this mission of Jesus. God's mission extends through Christ into his people who are empowered by his spirit. And what is this mission, right? What is the mission of the church? Well, Jesus sums it up. It's proclamation and it's witness. All that the church does can be summed up in those words, which essentially mean the same thing. It's all witness. Our worship is a witness to the gospel. Our community is a witness to the gospel. Our holiness is a witness to the gospel. Our evangelization is obviously a witness to the gospel. Nothing that we do as a church stands outside those bounds. All of it is pointing and witnessing to what Jesus Christ has done, crucified and risen the third day. And what does this actually mean concretely, though? What does it actually look like when we're talking about a church with a missionary nature? Well, in the first place, right, a church that is a missional church or that understands itself according to this scriptural understanding, a missional church breaks down the misconception that mission is the work of the clergy, right, that is a missionary or a pastor, Again, old, under that old consensus, right, I'm talking about Christendom. That was the case for about 1,700 years. People came to the church simply to receive services from the professional clergy, right? Their role as members of the church was fundamentally passive because society was Christian. You really didn't need to do a lot of evangelizing. Everyone was baptized when they were born. In contrast, the missional church affirms that all believers, not simply the clergy, or the pastor or missionary, that all believers are on mission in all areas of their lives. In other words, the service is not the primary connection point with those outside the church, 
the day-to-day of life is. In his book, Evangelism and the Early Church, Michael Green says that the explosive growth of early Christianity was really, he says, in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That is, ordinary believers, not trained pastors and evangelists, ordinary believers carried on the mission of the church, not through formal preaching, but through informal conversation. Green says, in homes and in wine shops, on walks and around market stalls, they did it naturally and enthusiastically. So our aim in hopefully recovering a missional identity is to recover mission for everyone, not merely the supremely gifted or the uh, institutional leaders of the church. And so what does this look like? Well, it looks like three things. One, verbal witness to the gospel and our web of relationships. It looks like love for our neighbors. It looks like showing mercy in our neighborhood. And three, and it looks like we integrate faith and work. But what does that look like even more concretely? What does it look like to live a missional life? Well, it looks like at work, your colleague asks how your weekend went. And you reply that I went to church and I heard a message on forgiveness. And when your colleague shows a little bit of interest, at least says maybe that's interesting, you take a small plunge and you elaborate just a little bit about how the gospel frees us to forgive. It looks like parents who read the scriptures to their children and teach them the fundamentals of the faith. It looks like someone who invites their friend to community group where they can ask questions and learn more about Jesus. It looks like a businessman who's mocked for his faith but remains humble and loving to his co-workers. It looks like a new convert who invites his unbelieving friends to his baptism and then takes them out to lunch to explain what it meant. This is missional living. This is what we need to recover. So to circle back to our original point, our church has a future only to, extent, to the extent that it recovers a missional identity. Right? We don't have a mission. We are a mission. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. You are witnesses of these things. So if we tried to boil down um, our mission as a church into a simple vision statement, and we'll start to wind down here, it would be this. We are a community following Jesus, advancing the kingdom of heaven on earth. You're going to hear that language a lot from me and from Jim. We are a community following Jesus, advancing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And really, our vision statement there is just a placeholder for those three elements within it, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Kingdom, community, and discipleship. These three themes are the primary themes in the New Testament. And I'm going to teach those to you coming in the next couple weeks, but I want to just introduce them to you now as we close. Our first pillar is the kingdom, or better, what we can say, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is shorthand for the entire storyline of the scriptures and its climactic point in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died and rose again not simply to forgive our sins. He died and rose again not simply to save us from damnation. He died and rose again not simply to restore broken fellowship. 
But Jesus died and rose again primarily that he might become Lord of heaven and earth. As the Apostle Paul says, Romans 14, 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. For this end he died and rose again, that he might be Lord. So the story that the scriptures tell is the good news of a king and his kingdom. Not an escape from this world, but heaven coming down to earth. The Father's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that leads to our second pillar, which is the church community. Jesus is king, and the church community is the place where the people, excuse me, is the place and the people where his reign is realized. His his rule as king will be acknowledged by everyone in the end. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the scripture says. But that is acknowledged now in the church. We confess that Jesus is Lord. Indeed, the church, its worship, its community, its holiness is a foretaste of that kingdom. The church is supposed to be a contrast community, a witness to the world demonstrating what it looks like to confess Jesus is Lord. This is what human life looks like when it's brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what does that actually look like? And that brings us to our third pillar, which is discipleship, or what we're also calling cruciformity. The church, Jesus says in Matthew 5, is to be a city set on a hill. It's to be a lamp in a dark place. It's to be the salt of the earth. But where does this light and distinctness come from? It comes from following Jesus. That's what sets us apart from the world. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to take up the cross. It means to deny ourselves and to follow behind Jesus. In other words, what's supposed to make the church a unique human community is that it's conformed to the pattern that we see demonstrated in the cross. The church is to be different from the world, and its difference derives in emulating that sacrificial love demonstrated in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So to put all that together, it forms what I believe to be a compelling vision for our church and for our lives. We are a community following Jesus, advancing the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, I've gone on about mission long enough now. And so as we turn our hearts to the Lord's Supper... I want to invite you to reflect on God's mission toward you. The Father sent the Son in the power of the Spirit, and He took on flesh and blood. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He humbled Himself to the point of death that we might be exalted with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places. We live because God has come to us in mission through His Son, and through His Spirit. And that's what we remember and commemorate now. So I'd invite you to come up to receive the elements of communion, to take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in just one moment.